0: Show up. But my faith in my money help me rise Welcome to the Huddlecast, your source for Bitcoin education and inspiration. In Hope you enjoy Okay hello everyone and welcome to the Huddlecast. Today is Sunday May 17th and we have very special guest Attorney Raphael Jacobi. Um, Raphael and I recently wrote an article for Bitcoin Magazine together, and um, we've been in the Telegram group for for a little while. That's <laughs> kind of how we got to know each other. But Raphael, thank you so much for taking the time today. And um, can you introduce yourself and maybe explain how you got involved in this niche area of Bitcoin law?
1: Sure. Thank you for having me. Yes, and I recommend that anyone who's listening read our read our article. We put a, we put a lot of work into it, and I think it's a good written background on some of the topics that I think we'll cover today. Um so in terms of how I got into crypto or Bitcoin law, I'd been interested in Bitcoin for quite a while, you know, on and off a little bit here and there since twenty thirteen. I was in law school at the time, didn't really have any money, but I, you know, got in because it was exciting and heard about it from the Silk Road and just kind of being a libertarian on the internet, you know, it's something that you'll You'll probably come across now everyone knows about it, but even back then, it was something that you know was pretty frequent, and it was kind of like it, an interesting internet tool. You know, the sound money uh, value proposition or investment proposition wasn't wasn't as clear, at least not at all clear to me back then. It was more like a useful tool for having some freedom on the internet. And so I got interested in it, in it back then, and then a couple of years later. I uh, I had, I, in law school, I had kind of introduced Bitcoin to another classmate of mine. We graduated together and he ended up building a website, which is now the Crypto Lawyers, my law firm's website. And he built the website kind of as an experiment because we were both interested in the area and people just started emailing. And then, you know, he asked me to do it with him and I was apprehensive because it wasn't at all obvious what, you know, we both like crypto and Bitcoin, but who knows what the law is, right? That was my initial reaction was what exactly am I supposed to do for these people, you know? And and then after we got into it a little bit further, we realized that people just want lawyers to do regular lawyer things for the most part. Uh, but it helps if they can understand the subject matter, right? From a user's perspective or, or things like that. So we kind of just, tried it out and, you know, there was a need for securities lawyers and I was doing securities litigation and then it kind of, you know, evolved from there. So we, we adjusted with the market and it's worked out really well. I haven't done a billable minute of non-crypto work since we started the firm in early 2018.
0: Oh, awesome. (laughs) That's, that's kind of similar to my, how I got into it as well. It just, uh, yeah, there's definitely a need in the space for for attorneys, and it's it's a fun area to practice in. That's for sure. Yeah. Or when I say fun, I guess it's a uh, an innovative area because things are if it's uh, you know ever changing. Agreed. But and and you've become quite a Bitcoin privacy proponent. Um, can you explain a little bit why why Bitcoin privacy matters?
1: Sure. I think. Bitcoin privacy is important primarily as, just for safety purposes. I mean, I think that's the most most important reason, that given that Bitcoin has, you know, a public ledger where you can see the transactions, you know, you need to be able to control what information you share with your counterparties when you transact with them. And so if you, you know, always use the same address or something like that, and you also store all your Bitcoin in the same address all the time, you're effectively sharing your balance and all your transaction history and your future transactions with everyone that you interact with. And if Bitcoin is to be money, that's not an ideal way to do things. And you can see that from the real world as well. You know, you don't want to stop in a convenience store and let's say you're in a bad area and you stop in a store and you want to buy some water or snack or something, and then you swipe your card and they see, oh, this guy's got a, you know, 7.5 7.5 million dollars, right? That that would be an awkward situation to be in and could even put you in danger. It's not not as much of an issue in in the United States, fortunately, but there has been people who have been kidnapped and, you know, put under pressure, tortured, things like that, and, and other countries uh, to get their Bitcoin. And, you know, because Bitcoin is a self-custodial asset, you have to take the responsibility of this. And so I think safety is, Safety is the main issue, but just as a matter of, you know, basic civil rights and having the ability to do what you want to do with your money or do what you want to do with your, you know, computer without having complete surveillance over it. It's just, if you're going to have freedom, you need to have some, some level of privacy. So I think that for me, at least those are the reasons why it's important. Uh, Yeah, I think safety is really, really at the core and. That can be from, you know, criminals, it could be from governments, uh, but that's my personal reason why I think it's
0: important. Agreed. Yeah, great answer there. And so when when you and I were writing our article, we were focused on the Helix case. Which I'll just give a brief overview. I know <laughs> you know the details inside and out, but uh, but for those listening, you know it was a case where there was a three-count indictment. Um, it happened on February 11th, and it was in the District of Columbia. the The defendant is Larry Harmon, a 36 year old from Ohio. Um, he was charged with money laundering, conspiracy, operating an unlicensed money transmitting business, and conducting money transmission without a DC license. So, you know, we kind of broke always the the money laundering and unlicensed money transmission charges seem to go hand in hand. So, uh, you know, let's maybe break down like what is what is FinCEN, a FinCEN exchanger? And what does what does one of those, you know, if you are a FinCEN exchanger, what do you need to do?
1: Sure. So just to give context for, I don't know what exactly the demographics of who listens, but FinCEN is the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, right? Which is a federal government agency that is tasked with preventing money laundering. That's their primary focus. Whereas, you know, the states are generally more interested in consumer protection when they deal with money transmission. So FinCEN has certain kinds of Classifications that, if your activities or your business falls into those classifications, then you're required to register with FinCEN and then you have to comply with the Bank Secrecy Act. And so, you know, I'm just going to paraphrase here, but essentially, if you're accepting and transmitting money uh, on behalf of others or exchanging currencies, then you're probably going to fall within one of FinCEN's definitions as, you know, an exchanger. And this makes you effectively a financial institution. You know, by by the broader definition under federal law, and so once you're a f- financial institution, you've got certain obligations that you're expected to fulfill, commonly referred to as KYC and AML.
0: Mm-hmm. And in the in the case that we were looking at with Helix, so they were running a custodial mixing service which meant they were taking and and most of their transactions which was 350,000 bitcoin valued at 300 million that was transacted between 2014 and 2017 um most of it came from alpha bay which is a darknet i think it's like a silk road you know to, or I guess there's been so many different Silk Road you know variations since then but it was a place a dark web marketplace for the purchase and sale of drugs so um, so they weren't taking you know kyc information they certainly weren't registered with any financial crimes enforcement network and uh, and so they were just allowing people on the dark net to to Send money back and forth from from this Alpha Bay to to Helix, which and then they would take custody of the coins, mix them to obscure or obfuscate the fact that they came from the dark web, and then send it back to the to the individual. So um, you know, so I guess from from a KYC perspective, they, and they certainly weren't collecting the the information um, necessary for that. And uh, another thing you know, that you and I kind of talked about in it was, was whether, so, whether someone who is a FinCEN exchanger, so if, once they're already registered with FinCEN and you know, complying and co- collecting the necessary KYC information about each person who's conducting the transaction, do they have to use blockchain analysis software? And are those uh, blockchain analysis softwares reliable?
1: Sure. So this is definitely a controversial subject, at least to me, and, and I know to many other people as well. Uh, I mean, the law doesn't say that you need to use blockchain analysis software. The law really doesn't even mention blockchain. It's only FinCEN's guidance that puts, you know, virtual currency transactions within the realm of financial institutions at all. So they've, you know, interpreted the laws that Congress has, written and passed to include virtual currency. And then the the general rule is that you need to take reasonable steps to prevent money laundering and some kind of a risk-based approach. That's it. You know, there's been a little more guidance here and there about what, you know, which kind of businesses are regulated and which aren't. But at least from my perspective, FinCEN doesn't really get involved You know in prescribing exactly what kind of methods are to be used in every situation so the burden is on the business to do a good job at what the law says they're required to do and whether or not that requires blockchain analysis is an issue that's going to be answered probably not by the law at least not not in america although in europe that that may happen they just may make it mandatory but it's going to be up to the industry to develop standards that they're willing to accept mm-hmm. so to, to the point where, you know, it would be considered that it's required. But I think certainly for smaller businesses, you know, let's say Bitcoin ATMs, I don't think it's necessary, mainly because it's, it would be too expensive, right? These these kinds of software applications are, you get a license for it and they're, they're quite expensive. And if your business let's say you're a trader on Paxful or Bitcoin ATMs or local Bitcoins, and you're dealing with, you know, a few hundred dollars at a time. I don't think, I don't think it's justified in terms of what level of, you know, surveillance you're, you're required to do on your customers, because if, if your transactions, let's say are all under $250, how much money, money laundering can people really do? You know, it would take so much effort for a serious criminal to launder millions of dollars. $200 at a time that they are probably just not going to do it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, on the other hand, if you're, let's say a very large exchange where people are sending many, many millions of dollars, then supposedly, or I guess you could say fairly the risks of money laundering are higher there, but that still doesn't answer the question as to whether blockchain analysis is necessary. And I think it can be useful as a targeted tool, If there's already evidence that something suspicious is going on or some crime has been committed, you know, you can use these kinds of tools to track down where it went, right? Maybe somebody's account got hacked and the coins were withdrawn from, you know, Bittrex and they were sent to Coinbase, right? Blockchain analysis tools would help you figure that out. Then you could call Coinbase, ask them to freeze the coins and, you know, maybe recover them back to the person that, that, uh, that owns them, but. As they're commonly used now, it's kind of used as like a dragnet surveillance program where everyone's transactions are being recorded and monitored, you know, all the time. And they're building kind of a big, I don't know, neural net kind of map showing everybody's coins and what everyone is doing all the time, which seems like, I'm not sure that it, I, I don't know how many crimes it prevents, but it certainly shares a lot of information about individual activities that are you know normal and and not criminal as i think almost everyone that uses bitcoin is not using it for crimes maybe there's some small percentage just like with dollars or or any other currency but in terms of their reliability it's hard to say because it's in the blockchain analysis company's financial interest to oversell the the reliability of their work right the more reliable it is the more uh, people are more, you know, likely to pay for the software, or and, and how much they're willing to pay for it if it's more reliable. And so, you know, they're monitoring mining your transactions, but we we don't have an opportunity to c- clarify on the record to show that they're accurate or not. Right? They probably think that you and I are doing whatever they think we're doing, and there's no opportunity to confirm whether or not it's actually true. So they just have heuristics. Like they see coins go from one place to another and based on the spending pattern, they make an assumption that this was a self transfer from one person to themselves, or it was to another person or it was, you know, for some kind of suspicious reason. But besides a couple of groups of people that are outside of these companies, but also have the ability to do chain analysis like OXT research, uh, there's there's almost nobody to really challenge them so i don't i don't think that their heuristics have been you know objectively demonstrated as being highly reliable at, not yet at least i mean because just you know looking at the blockchain is complicated enough beyond looking up your own transactions mm-hmm. so it takes a lot of effort and training and tools to to verify the the reliability and that's we're just not there yet
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think I I saw Larry Cermak posted something on Twitter, like probably a year and a half ago now, but it was really shocking to me at the time showing the amount of spending the IRS had made on blockchain analysis tools. So so it seems seems like they might be, the IRS might be the number one um, customer of this, but then we've also seen banks requiring it you know in order to give someone an account they'll say oh well you need to, you know where's your blockchain analysis as though it's a mandatory thing from FinCEN when it's absolutely not mandatory that you have that on there by any FinCEN rules as you pointed out but uh i think that's you know the government and then the banks are kind of some of the driving forces that are that are pushing these tools and it's um yeah. it's uh, And then, it, you know, as we're going to get into it, it kind of, uh, you know, it, it it creates this thing called taint. And uh, maybe you're probably better, better at describing what, what taint is, but uh, maybe you could give that a go.
1: Sure. So I, I guess it depends who's using it. But taint is essentially a reference to it's not a reference to anything that happens on the blockchain, right? The transactions are what they are, but it's basically the practice of treating some Bitcoin, for example, different than other Bitcoin. And so an exchange that sees, you know, uses tools and uh, chain analysis tools and sees that Bitcoin are coming from somewhere that they believe are suspicious might give, you know, some kind of different risk rating to, to those coins or treat them differently than other coins, which they consider safer. And so it's, it's something that is ascribed or prescribed to to certain Bitcoin versus others. Not something that actually you know it exists on the blockchain.
0: hmm And it, and and then what are the fungibility implications if if a blockchain analysis you know tool starts saying that certain Bitcoin have this taint on them?
1: Right. So fungibility at least, you know, as far as money goes, is is meant to describe that each unit is the same as every other unit, meaning like, you know, a one $1 bill is just as good as any other $1 bill, right? They're both, they're both the same. They're both worth $1 and it doesn't really matter which one you have. So if you owe somebody $10, you could just give them any $10 bill. You don't have to give them the same one back. Right. And that's because they're all the same. They're all fungible. Uh, and so, you know, if, if exchanges treat different sets of Bitcoin as different then Bitcoin is not as fungible. And therefore, you know, if you start to get into a situation where somebody says that, oh, the price of this car is one Bitcoin, but if you send the Bitcoin from Coinbase, now it's 1.2. Or if you send it from Bittrex, it's 0.8. Or, you know, if you send it from a miner, it's 0.5. Right, it, it it makes Bitcoin uh, less money than it otherwise would be, considering if you believe that fungibility is a necessary quality for money, and I think most people do.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, is there any way to remove the the taint on a Bitcoin?
1: Well, you could just not believe in it, and then it's not there, right? That's one one strategy. Uh, but other people may may believe it, and so you know, it'll still be there for them, right? But if if the industry just doesn't use that kind of terminology or that strategy, then the issue is solved, right? But we're operating under the assumption that some people in the industry are going to use this characterization. And so we have to figure out how to deal with that. Uh, I mean, every time you use an exchange and you deposit your coins into the exchange and then you later withdraw, you're getting new coins, right they don't i don't think for the most part don't just hold your coins in one address and then you just take them right back out of that address you know when you deposit to an exchange they it gets mixed in with all of theirs and then you can withdraw it again later so every time you use an exchange you're basically starting over as far as i can tell assuming that they haven't you know flagged your deposit and froze it on the way in right so just using it in that way or you know is is a potential way and then Another way is just using the Bitcoin for goods and services the way you normally would, because it will travel from you to, you know, another business through like BTC pay server or BitPay or something. And then, you know, that person will have it and they'll sell it or they'll store it in cold storage. And it kind of goes, keeps flowing through the system. And eventually, even if it was previously tied to some kind of illicit transaction, let's say it was in the Silk Road, but now it's been like 50 hops since then you know, what is anyone supposed to do with that information? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, maybe 50 people have had it since then. And then it's just, it's not that useful. So, you know, yeah, first category, don't pay attention to it. Second category, just use it. Another way is to use a mixer or a tumbler. And, you know, we, we, we alluded to that already, right? Uh, you know, there's custodial tumblers where you send them your Bitcoin, then they send you back other Bitcoin, which is basically what a normal exchange does, except that With normal exchange, like Kraken or something, you're not sending the coins there so that you can get different ones back. You're sending it there so you could sell them or exchange them or something like that. But it's functionally functionally the same thing. And then besides the custodial tumblers, then there's CoinJoin, which is non-custodial mixing, which effectively puts your coins together with a bunch of other people who want to make a transaction. And then by the time it gets to the destination, it's not clear where it started. And this effectively, you know, unlinks your outputs, the destination of your Bitcoin from the inputs, which is where the Bitcoin started.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I guess the, the fear is, you know, if, if I've heard people say that that places like Coinbase or very popular exchanges, maybe Gemini, I don't know the exact exchanges policies on these, but Some people have said that they won't, the exchanges have, will not accept coins that have come from mixing, tumbling or coin join services, which is, you know, because they can't determine the path they don't know if they're then accepting coins that might have been used on the dark web at some point and then uh, opening themselves up to liabilities. So, um, you know, all the Bitcoin core or, you know, the privacy experts in Bitcoin, Suggests that everyone should be qu- using a coin join with almost every transaction, but then the reality of it is the the exchanges might not, you know, count those bitcoins. And then if it's gone through coin join, it might have a higher level of taint and lower level of fungibility. So, um, I guess the best way is just once you you know stay off the exchanges, and then there's no problem.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, easy. yeah. There's. If you don't have to use an exchange, then certainly don't use it, right? But but people do use them because they need to, primarily just to buy Bitcoin and you know, occasionally to sell Bitcoin. But who does that, right? So most of the time people need to use exchanges just to buy Bitcoin because well, some some people can earn it, right? I earn it here and there. You probably do too. But well, that's a that's a privilege that we have, and it's not an option for everyone to get paid in Bitcoin. So the exchanges are necessary as far as i'm concerned because there's big demand for people to you know people who want to buy people who want to buy bitcoin but to the uh to the point about exchanges you know flagging CoinJoin or tumblers i think they definitely flag custodial tumblers because those are much more heavily associated with you know the dark web and illicit transactions because that's really how they were used and advertised that's that was their purpose um, as far as non-custodial Coin joins being flagged. We have heard reports of that from a couple of exchanges, but I don't. Besides maybe BlockFi, which their CEO tweeted explicitly that they're prohibited from accepting post coin join coins, I don't know that almost any other exchange has really said what exactly they how they feel about this. Right? We don't know. We don't know what they're doing internally. Most of them are not very transparent, and so. We know that that the chain analysis companies can see these transactions as coin joins and flag them and maybe assign some risk to them, but the exchanges definitely don't have a unified policy on this, and we we don't know why. We don't know why exactly yet. It might be because they don't want to upset people, they don't want to upset their customers, or they haven't figured it out, or they are they don't trust the metrics, or maybe you know, the chain analysis companies are doing even better than we think they're doing and they know everything anyway, right? Maybe they've got other methods to unwind, you know, lots of the coin joins and it's like people are coin joining and then depositing to the exchange thinking they're getting away with something. And the reality is that the exchange knows everything already anyway. So that, that seems unlikely, but it's just a possibility. Um, But you know, it seems like this is going to be an important issue that comes up and it's important to a lot of Bitcoiners because a lot of them care about their privacy as well as they should. Uh, if if enough people coin join, then the exchanges are pretty much not going to have a choice. You know, if if 50% of transactions are coin join transactions, the exchange can't reasonably, you know, turn down half of their transactions because it's, it's too significant. Uh, so, that's a possible outcome that could happen in the future. But getting half of Bitcoiners to do anything is certainly not, you know, not an easy task.
0: Yes, agreed. Yeah. And uh, from a regulatory perspective, so you mentioned custodial and non custodial mixers or coin joins. Um, you know, can you explain the difference from from a legal perspective? What what taking custody actually means? or a coin join.
1: Sure. So, uh, well, th- the short answer is that custodial exchanges are regulated by FinCEN as money services businesses almost always if they're if they're in the business of accepting and transmitting money, which is what custodial exchanges are doing, then they're re- they're, they're regulated by FinCEN, those are financial institutions or MSBs. But if it's not custodial, then they're not MSBs. That's the short answer. So if you're using a CoinJoin company, they are not a financial institution uh, and they are not required to collect information about you because they don't actually have access to your money, right? When you're doing a coin join, essentially you're paying for a coordinator to prepare transactions, unsigned transactions in advance and distribute those transactions among a group of people. And everyone that's going to sign them knows where they're going. And a few steps later, a coin join is completed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm skimming and, over the technical explanation, but you get the idea.
0: And uh, I know you're you're a big part of the Wasabi community. Would you say that's one of the better ways to to do a coin join, or where where should people who haven't done it before go to to experiment with it? If, if they wanted to, you know, it's one of these things we're not recommend, well, I'm not recommending or, or not recommending to do anything. But, uh, but I think there's some better way safer ways to do it than others. And certainly a non custodial um, mixing service is probably the way to go on this. And um, I believe Wasabi probably has has one of the best ones out there. But I, I, I'm not that familiar with it.
1: Sure. So using a non custodial piece of software is definitely preferable to custodial right? Not your keys, not your coins. You know, everyone knows that or should know that. So if you're using something that's non-custodial and, you know, it's relatively popular and people have looked at the code, then you can feel some reasonable level of assurance that they're not going to secretly steal your money, right? That's just, you know, basic Bitcoiner stuff, right? Before you download a wallet, make sure that somebody that can read the code has looked at it and I can't read the code. So, you know, I have to rely on some level of trust, right? Trust minimized, not not trustless. Uh, as far as particular implementations, I'm not in a position to endorse or not endorse any one of them. And it's really not not because I don't have opinions on it. I do. But the reality is, is that you have to be very sophisticated, techn- technologically sophisticated, to be able to, you know, analyze the Bitcoin transactions in the context of CoinJoin, and then see which one is more effective than others, right? And mm-hmm. people may not know, but there's quite a rivalry between uh, Samurai Wallet and Wasabi Wallet in terms of oh. uh, of CoinJoin, and so <laughs> it was it Samurai
0: uh, that when so when I first tweeted about the um, you know the the Bitcoin article, and then you linked to me several resources. Was it Samurai that you were linking to, maybe, and not Wasabi? So I think I just got them confused. I'm sorry.
1: That's okay. Uh, it pro- I think it was Samurai Wallet, but uh, the short answer is I'm not getting in the middle of anybody's rivalry.
0: <laughs> but sure.
1: I, yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that just to put put a cap on that is that Wasabi is a desktop wallet and Samurai is a mobile wallet, so they're different.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it depends. Uh, it depends what you're looking for, and there's plenty of information out there. You know, let's say weighing the pros and cons of each, or there's plenty of information that you could dig into to try to make an informed decision yourself. But, you know, I want to be not just because of any rivalry, but I don't want to give anyone like advice about software when I'm not, a am not a software developer. You know, I would, I would just be repeating what other people told me that I thought sounded right. Or what I read that I thought sounded right. You know, people ask me about the law. I can talk about that. Right. Cause I can read the law. And I can understand it, or at least I try and, you know, give somebody an informed decision based on, I don't know, how many thousands of hours I've spent practicing law and going to law school and studying. Right. So if I talk about the law, I'm, you know, I'm I'm capable of giving legal advice when people hire me. Um, But not, I don't want people to confuse any expertise I have in law with software or technological expertise. Right. And so, it's just something that I would want to be careful about because I'm not an expert on those things.
0: Sure, sure, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: when I get to a point where I can review the code and you know understand exactly how they work and say with complete confidence that something is you know safe or functions as described, I'll start giving recommendations at that point, but not before then.
0: Mm-hmm. And and so we've kind of talked about FinCEN and the the requirements there for a company. What about uh, OFAC? What are the what are the requirements that, or you know, where does that fit into the mix?
1: Sure. So um, OFAC deals with sanctions that are imposed by the U.S. government and probably other governments, or you know, between various national governments. Right? They say that you're not allowed to do business with certain people, terrorists, or criminals, or whoever they put on their list, uh, and certain countries. And so they maintain lists of people that you are not permitted to do transactions with. And if you're a financial institution, you're required to search these lists before you do a transaction with someone, which is part of the reason why you're required to know who your customer is so that you can make sure that they're not on the list. And, you know, something that I've been thinking about and have been starting to research just a little bit is how these kinds of requirements apply to indivi- individuals because they ap- they apply to everyone right you and i don't have an affirmative obligation to do these this kind of research before we take a client and neither do most people who just run businesses but even though we're not required to investigate this issue we're still not allowed to do business with these these countries and people and so you know who has time to like search the ofac list before they you know pay their carpenter or something like that uh but anyway, OFAC fits in because they do the sanctions.
0: Mm-hmm. And they've they've added Bitcoin addresses too. So it right. is actually I think that that the OFAC is, in my opinion, one of the um, scarier parts about the fungibility discussion around Bitcoin because they've they first they added two and then I think you know six months later they added another couple and then more recently like maybe just in march of 2020 i should have looked this up before before our podcast but uh it was very recent but they added around 20 new addresses so is any bitcoin in those addresses is essentially frozen and there's no guidance that i'm aware of as to how far removed a transaction from that address is before it would be considered safe for an exchange to to hold it perhaps it's one hop i've heard um, uh, Carol Van Cleef, she's an attorney that's uh, that's been around this space for quite some time. I've heard her say it was up to five hops. I've never seen that written anywhere. I think that's just her, you know, best practice approach to it. Um, and I hope I'm not misquoting her there, but uh, but I think that's you know this OFAC thing is a little bit of a danger and. Also requiring, you know, it really requires KYC to be taken even at a dollar level of transaction for anyone that's registered with FinCEN, which... Um, you know, you need the name of the person to be able to search the the OFAC list on it and it's it's really impractical. Um and, and as you mentioned, it it really does it it technically applies to all types of business transactions. Like anyone walking into a grocery store, if they're if they're from a you know, if they're on a sanctions list, they shouldn't be allowed to even take cash and buy something at the grocery store. But that's not um, you know, it's not it's not upheld or it's not enforced. And I haven't seen OFAC enforced very much on Bitcoin either, even though it's there as a looming threat. And certainly, you know, every, every compliance program I've come across, you know, it has to take great efforts not to, not to be in violation of anything to do with OFAC or, but, you know, or you know, just making sure that you're collecting at least the person's name um, so that you can do the search. You know, really, we should have the address too but uh, yeah I, I, where do you think um, where do you think it's going like in a in a you know future of this like how how where do you think it, it will go in terms of um, how many addresses are on the ofac list, or how much privacy is going to be enforced, or whether Bitcoin can continue to transact in some level of anonymity
1: right well, the ofac Bitcoin addresses thing is interesting I mean I don't particularly think it's so serious because creating a new address is very easy, right? You can create basically unlimited addresses and you shouldn't be reusing them. And so, you know, it's not that bad, right? They can just keep adding them and adding them. And it's not like they're going to one day add up so many that, you know, we don't have any more left, right? I don't know what the maximum number of possible public addresses you can create with one private key is, but it's a lot probably hundreds of thousands or who knows, millions, hundreds of millions. I have no idea, but it's a lot. So you can create new addresses. I don't see them putting certain addresses on the list as being a major fungibility issue. Uh, But for those Bitcoin that are in there, I mean, they can still be moved if somebody has the private keys. So I wouldn't say that I thought I think they're frozen
0: Mm -hmm. um,
1: because other people may be willing to take them. And there's lots of people that accept Bitcoin as payment, you know, who aren't financial institutions who wouldn't even know, you know, if you had your Bitcoin on one of those addresses and then you went and bought like a t-shirt from someone, you know, they're not going to know that you're dealing, that, that, that they got OFAC Bitcoin because they're not a financial institution and who checks OFAC for t-shirt sales, Right. Mm -hmm. Uh so they can still move and then they can get mixed in with other people's coins and then you know Eventually the record is just not clear enough to blame anybody for anything. I think as far as the hops go It would be nice if five hops cleared your bitcoin But i'm not sure that that's the case and the reason why is because it's really easy to create hops I could just take all my bitcoin right now and just send it five times in a row and then on the sixth time Just send it back to myself now. I've created five hops, you know Mm Mm-hmm I don't think that solves solves the problem on its own because, I mean, like I said, it would be great if it did. I hope they do that. But from what I've heard, the analysis companies are are basically, the only hops they care about are the hops between addresses that they know. So let's say you withdraw your Bitcoin from Coinbase and then it hops around 25 times. They don't care about that. They just want to know next time it hits an exchange that they know the address to like it ends up at Kraken. Now they'll say, okay, we've got Coinbase person a, and we've got Kraken either person, a the same person or person B. And so they're trying to get around this, you know, create some hops for anonymity, uh, situation. But I don't know how effective they are at that. And as more people begin to coin join and as other technologies, you know, develop, the technology i think is always going to be ahead of the regulators and ahead of the surveillance teams it's just the way it is and 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 i think the way it should be um, but i'm not sure what's going to happen with how many hops it takes to to clear the bitcoin for the reasons that i for the reasons that i mentioned
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> one of my friends uh pointed out one fail safe way to to clear the bitcoin is uh to have the U S government or some government agency sees it. And once it goes into their possession and then they auction it off, then it's, you know, the same as coming from a minor, you know, it's very safe. <laughs> but, right. Yeah. But, right.
1: Well, in terms of, uh, it, yeah, I think in terms of the, if the government is the one that you're worried about, then getting it from them is a safe way to do it. But obviously that's not practical for, for yeah. most people. And I'm not sure that they're even auctioning off any at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, Though they did sell some before uh, after the Silk Road, right? I'm, maybe there have been batches after that, but those are the last ones that I remember.
0: Mm-hmm. Silk
1: Silk Road, maybe, yeah, I think those or maybe Mount Cox. I'm not sure.
0: yeah, I wonder I wonder if they seized I'm pretty sure they seized a lot of Bitcoin in this helix case too, so we'll see well oh, that's true that. right and and
1: some other recent, uh, yeah, some other cases like that, but.
0: But, oh, well, Raphael, this has been a great discussion. Um, I really appreciate your input on this, on the privacy. stuff. So it's, a, it's a topic that, you know, I haven't come across too many lawyers that, that really know the ins and outs of it like you do. So I really appreciate your taking the time to to talk to us about it. Um, where can people find you if they want to, you know, hire you for, for some work? Or what kind of clients are you, are you interested in working with as well?
1: Sure. I appreciate that. And yes, happy to be here and to, happy to talk to you about it. And I thought that, you know, I probably wouldn't have written our article by myself. So I don't want to downplay your your <laughs> contribution. It was your article before it was our article. Um, and so it was good to have the motivation to do well, it with, it got do a it with lot someone else.
0: Once you came into the, <laughs> into um, the, the documents. So I
1: appreciate that. So <laughs> in terms of where, where to find me, if you Google crypto lawyer, my website is thecryptolawyers.com, but if you Google Crypto Lawyer, it should be easy to find from there. Google's blessed me with a good position. Um, and you can find me on Twitter, CA Crypto Lawyer. And in terms of clients that I'm interested in taking, I mean, you know, I, I do this kind of Bank Secrecy Act FinCEN work and also deal with state money transmitter licenses or SEC investigations or litigation or disputes with exchanges. Uh Various kinds of work. I'm happy to talk to people. And if I don't know the right attorney, uh, if, I, if I'm not the right attorney to help them, I'll almost definitely know the right attorney and ha- happy to refer them to that person.
0: Awesome. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, and we appreciate your time and look forward to you know maybe our next article. <laughs> Who knows yeah. when that will be? But uh, I but,
1: agree. Thank you, know. you. I appreciate it.
0: All right. Thanks, Raphael. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening.